My loves, I am so happy and so pleased to announce that this episode is brought to you by my very own company, Savage Chocolates, which is all about cultivating a more loving relationship to your body and to food. You know, we don't really believe in guilty pleasure. We just believe in pleasure done well. And have you ever had that uh, candy bar or a thing of ice cream and you eat it and you're like, wait, I don't, I don't remember eating that. (laughs) Wait, where'd that go? (laughs) Well, that's why I created Savage Chocolates because I know the importance of pleasure. And I think that we don't slow down enough to actually experience it. And so... If you are wanting to eat mindfully, if you are wanting to be reminded of how to actually experience your pleasure, then please go to www.savagelosangeles.com to order your goods. All right, you guys, let's get to it. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really grateful to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. So I was just telling you a little bit about kind of what we're here, what we're, we're all about here at, at Savage Life Cast, but I would love for you to tell us all a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do and why you do it. Sure. Well, my background is pretty traditional. Um, I went to Princeton. I was one of the captains of the tennis team there, went into investment banking like many of my classmates, left New York and joined a Silicon Valley strategy firm where I spent 10 years, became a partner. So that's my background. Most of what we're going to talk about has nothing to do with that. (laughs) uh, You're right. In 2016, while I was still at my firm, I was listening to podcasts. And at the time, there were a bunch of things in my life that were not going so great. As someone who was so achievement focused, I had some business deals that didn't go my way for reasons out of my control. Some personal stuff wasn't going my way. And in the back of my mind, I thought life was meaningless because Mm -hmm. that's what science taught me is that we we randomly exist. There's no meaning to life. We can make up meaning, but that's just our own rationalization. That's where I was. And when things in my life weren't going great and I was on this treadmill and realized, wait, there's no end to this, I was pretty lost. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, I wasn't actively looking for something different, but it happens now in hindsight that I when I look back on it, I was listening to podcasts on business and health and came across one episode on a health podcast that talked about psychic abilities and consciousness beyond the body and things like that. And it was enough for me to say, that's pretty interesting. Let me listen to more podcasts like this when I'm driving from San Francisco into Silicon Valley in traffic most of the day. So I'll just listen to some of these interesting podcasts. Not, it wasn't, it didn't change my life initially. But the more I listened to podcasts like it and heard individual accounts and then listened, then started to read some of the science behind this, my life shifted dramatically. I would got, became very disoriented and said, wait a second, I've got to rethink everything. Because whatever I thought life was before, something much bigger is going on. Yeah. And um, that, that, in short, is what led me to where I am now. I ended up researching for a year, just nonstop, because I wanted to learn more and then ended up writing a book and then to Upside Down Thinking which we can talk about. Then I produced a podcast in 2019 where I interviewed many of the scientists on these topics and then left my firm at the end of 2019. In 2020, wrote a second book, End Upside Down Living. And I have been not in my job, but with no plans. I've been meditating hours a day and researching. So that's in a nutshell where I am. That was a fantastic arc. 
I'm all about it. Um, awesome. Well, so, so cool. I, I love, you know, I talk about it all the time on this podcast, but I think it is so real that, um, and I think it was Mark Groves who actually said it originally that, that we take a mess and we turn it into a message. And it's really, you know, in so many ways, what you did, you're like, life is meaningless. I'm going to find the meaning and now I'm sharing it with other people. Yeah. And that's when we, I, I truly believe we find a purpose right through these through these messes. Um, so you talk a lot about consciousness and I think for people who, you know, and, and of course, I, I love everything that you're talking about, psychic abilities, ESP, you know, I've read a, read a lot in it. I've also done a lot of exploration with psychedelics and all sorts of fun things, but for our audience, can you just talk to us a little bit about what consciousness is slash what it isn't? Great question. Well, I'll start my answer by saying that language is insufficient to explain yeah. what it is. <laughs> totally. That's one of the big challenges. So I'll use language or whatever I use as an approximation. And the way I like to think about consciousness is that it is our sense of experiencing life. It's the awareness that we all have right now that is experiencing this conversation, hearing it, listening to it, processing it. And the challenge with consciousness is that it's not physical. Whereas my leg, I can touch my leg, I can touch this table. But if you ask me to touch consciousness or touch my mind, my mental space, what, it's not physical. Right. And, and this is really the centerpiece of probably everything I will ever do because it, this, this gets into what is the nature of reality. And it comes down to this simple issue of the brain, which typically in our society today, we say, oh, the reason that we have mental abilities and the reason that we can think and have awareness is because our brains are so complex. There's chemical activity, there's electrical activity up here in my skull. And that is why I'm able to have awareness. Mm. What I was shocked to learn is that science has no idea how that could happen if it does. And Science Magazine, which is a very credible outlet, has said it's the number two question that remains in all of science. And I'm paraphrasing. How is it something physical like a brain, which is made out of matter? How could it produce this consciousness things that's so abstract? And of course, what I would argue now is that the brain is not making consciousness, that the reason we are aware is, is well beyond our body and the body is actually limiting what we're perceiving. <laughs> and the brain could be likened to, I like to call it a filter or like a blindfold. Some would say it's like an antenna. The, the idea is that the brain is interfacing with something beyond our body to get information, almost like a cell phone tapping into the cloud. Mm. So I'm using lots of analogies because if this is new to any of your listeners, it's a mm -hmm. complete life changer. Because then it's like, wait a second, what, what am I? If my sense of identity is my consciousness and my consciousness isn't coming from my body, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, like who the hell am I and why am I here? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's a serious, <laughs> it's a serious fall, but a beautiful one. Yeah, that's really, really beautiful. Speaking of why are we here, why do you think we're here? Well, my sense, going back to consciousness, before I, I give an answer to give your audience context. Yeah. I love to use an analogy by a philosopher named Dr. Bernardo Castrup. He said it's like we're whirlpools within an infinite stream of water where the water's like consciousness. So we have the sense of being an individual, but we're within the broader stream, we're interconnected. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's my overall cosmology in terms of how I think about life. And there's a lot of science to back this up. But the idea that we are one consciousness experiencing individuality and what I think the meaning of life is probably something beyond what we can comprehend because our body and our brain limits our, our ability to understand, like the concept of infinity. We don't 
understand it, but we kind of know it's real. I think it's similar with thinking about meaning, but there are hints that we have. And one of the, I'll give you two pieces of, of scientific evidence that point to meaning. And this is, I'm glad you asked the question because this has really been the centerpiece of my whole journey is getting to this question. Yeah. One is the idea of reincarnation. Okay. So there's research done at the University of Virginia, over 2,500 cases of children, young children, usually between the age of two and five, who have memories of a previous life. And sometimes, in some cases, the researchers can find the person that the child was referring to in historical records. Sometimes the children have birthmarks and deformities that align with medical records from a previous life. So really credible stuff. And I've interviewed these scientists. I mean, it's unbelievable. But it suggests that if we're whirlpools within the stream of consciousness, that the water can be recycled in a sense. So something from one whirlpool becomes another whirlpool. So that idea of a continuation of consciousness, that's one piece of, of meaning. Mm. And then I look at the near-death experience phenomenon where a person has, let's say, cardiac arrest. They go into the state where their brain is barely functional or it's completely off and they come back in their body after they're resuscitated and they had this incredible lucid memory. Some people would say, well, that's just a hallucination. The brain releases chemicals and it's like a DMT, psychedelic. the whole thing. DMT. Yeah. The problem is in some cases, the brain is, is so far gone that it shouldn't be capable of producing these experiences. But the real kicker is when some, sometimes people hover over their bodies, they claim, and they describe what happened in the room while they were out. And they come back and what they describe is accurate. So the doctors and the family members, sometimes actually not even in the same room, they say, yeah, you're completely right. So if it were a hallucination, they wouldn't get an accurate memory. So it's not a hallucination sometimes. All that's to say that what happens in this near-death experience state, it's almost like our brain is a filter. It blocks us from this reality. It blocks us from the broader stream of consciousness. And when you take the blindfold off, like in a near-death experience, get the brain out of the way, the broader reality, it becomes evidence. So what does this broader reality perhaps teach us? And now getting to your question about meaning. People talk about the life review phenomenon. They relive their whole lives in the state when their body's off, they're dead, clinically dead, or close to it. And they relive, all the, relive the events in their life, sometimes through the eyes of the people that they impacted. So one of the people that I interviewed for my podcast named Daniel Brinkley, he's well known because he's had four near-death experiences over the course of his life. Whoa, I haven't, I have not heard of this human and four NDEs is so serious. <laughs> Struck by lightning once, open heart surgery twice and brain surgery another time. Whoa. And each time he had a life review, he relived his life through the eyes of the people that he impacted and wow. including his time in Vietnam when he killed people in combat. He told me he was vicious in combat. So he had to relive the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes and the pain of the child that would no longer have a father because he had Mm -hmm. killed the father. So he felt the indirect effects. When he came back into his body, like many people who have these experiences, his life was changed. He became a hospice volunteer. And what he says, like many others, is that the way we treat people is what actually matters in the broader scheme of this grand consciousness. It's not how big your house is. It's like, how did you treat the cashier at the grocery store? So if we have reincarnation process with a sort of a self-judgment, maybe judgment's a strong word, but self-observation to see how we do in life, and the reincarnation might be a mechanism for us to try again while we have an amnesia, we don't actually remember all the stuff. Right. That's a long way of saying that life seems to be about the evolution of our consciousness, that we're trying to grow towards a state of joy and love rather than malice. Yes. And to do it in an embodied state, because if we're all, you know, 
this consciousness, this sense of oneness that can go or come into a body to actually have it in an embodied state is different than to be in the collective consciousness of just oneness, you know, and so to actually experience, oh, this is coffee. Oh, this is something physical that I can have a reactivity to or have this conversation versus just the collective oneness of just pure consciousness and love. An important point because on the spiritual path, and I talk about this more in my second book and end upside down living is like, well, once we understand we're part of this grand consciousness, what do we, yeah. what does it mean? Do we just stay in that state of unity? Because yeah. sometimes in meditation, people talk about these same similar experiences of being yeah. blissed out. And that seems to be the nature of the highest level of consciousness is that it is a infinitely loving state. And even in meditation, I've had some, in the last year I've been meditating so much, some experiences where it's like kind of a glimpse of what people have reported and whatever it is, it was beyond anything, any pleasure in the world that I've ever experienced. But what you're saying, your disembodiment point is really critical because there can be a tendency to just get lost in trying to get that sensation, but we're in a body. So it's like the, the, the terms that I like to use are, the, the one big consciousness, which is our identity at some level, some call it the one mind, to quote the Nobel Prize winning physicist Erwin Schrodinger. He said, in truth, there's only one mind. So one mind, but we're experiencing the individual as a diverse part of the one mind. The one mind level of reality is true, even though we're not perceiving it right now. Some will call that the absolute level. There's also a relative level that there's a Mark and Alexa here apparently seeming separate and, and in a body and I have a bottle of water here and someone else coffee and we're, we're experiencing the world. The, the, the paradox is that they're both happening simultaneously. So it's yeah. like trying to be that oneness while in the body. And that's the challenge because it's, it's part of the human experience and it's a complete paradox. So wild. So, so wild. Thank you for that. And everything you're describing is so, um, you know, in my experiences, and that's all I know in this time and space is, is my own experience of things like watching my mother leave her body and her experience of that. It's everything that you are describing. It was before she left her body, it was all um, visuals of there was no time. Right. So it was all oneness. She was seeing people that had already passed. She was having conversations with people who were already gone. And it was not hallucinogenic. You know, it was it was pure, pure presence. But but her mind was shifting. And it's just beautiful to have an experience of that myself, not even as a person with an NDE, but just to bear witness to it is really, really amazing. There's a name for that phenomenon because research scientists have looked at this. It's called the deathbed vision. Wow. It is a known phenomenon. Like the University of Virginia, among other places, have looked at it where some something about nearing the time of death, mm-hmm. like the veil goes away. Yes. I don't understand it fully. There's a related phenomenon known as terminal lucidity. Mm-hmm. And it's like when a person's nearing death, let's say someone's had Alzheimer's disease and they've been out of it for a long time, suddenly, right, like maybe shortly before they're going to die, they snap back into clarity as if nothing were wrong. Yes. So they, somehow their brain is damaged and yet they have this period of lucidity. And it's like, I don't know, maybe the dimensions open up. There's also, you're reminding me of a phenomenon known as a shared death experience. It may be similar to what you had, I don't know exactly, but where a person, a bystander at the bedside lives the near-death experience with the person who's dying, sometimes co-living the life review. So it's like they both enter the dimension. Yes. That one's pretty wild. But this, these things are reported. And 
Yes. It's super important for us to just acknowledge there's more than it meets the eye. Oh, without a doubt. My mother's experience. So I, I did not have a shared death experience with her, although we did a lot of, um, my mother had, she passed about five months ago and, um, sorry. And thank you so much, but we had a long time to prepare. She had stage four cancer. She was given six months. She lived six years. Um, and so, you know, we did so much reading and so much exploration, everything from workshops with, you know, this, that, and the other person to, of course, you know, psychedelics and all the things. Um, but she told me about her shared death experience that she had with her father. And when her father passed, she and him left their body and went up into the corner of the room and looked down and could see the whole scene. Like it was like she could see her sitting by her father's hospital bed and she could see her father's body um, and they were hovering in the corner and then he continued to leave and she went back into her body. Um, but it was just one of those things where you're like, okay, this is not uncommon. Like my mother had this, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And, and to think that this information is out there and yet we're so um, living in the confines of our, of our body and thinking that this is finite, uh, that we are finite and the body is finite. Um, but like what you're talking about is just so important. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. Well, we are conditioned not to think about this. It's not taught in our education system. It's, it's dismissed often as woo woo yeah. pseudoscience. And one of the things I talk about in my podcast and especially my first book is some of the dynamics in science where this information is actively suppressed. Wow. And I'm actually on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is, uh, it was founded in 1973 by an Apollo 14 astronaut who had a mystical experience coming back from the moon. That's what he describes. And he founded this institute outside of academia to be able to study like telepathy, mind-to-mind -mind communication or distant healing, credible scientists. But these are people that had to leave academia because you can't get tenure. You could lose your job if you try to study many of these topics. So I think it's important for the evolution of our education system really to start teaching people about the possibility of all this stuff because it would change people's lives i think in a positive way i know for me it has and people around me um, it's hard to live if you if you really don't think there's meaning and that's what science is teaching whether they say it explicitly or not the they talk about this just we're the speck in a big universe and we're meaningless that's like the the general tenor of the conversation so talking about telepathy and other forms of communication and, and like being able to see the future and all of those things, is this a skill that you think many of us are able to harness or is this kind of like only for select individuals or how do you feel about that? My sense is that it's innate. So every single person has it, but there's a spectrum of abilities. Mm. Sort of like a basketball player. Everyone can dribble mm. the ball, but not everyone is Michael Jordan or LeBron James on the right. court. I think that's how it works. So I'll give you an example from one of the most credible scientific studies. It's known as the Gonsfeld experiment. And to simplify how it works, you have one person in a room, let's say his name is Bob, and he's just sitting in a relaxed state. He's put into a meditative state because some people believe when your brain is quieter, maybe you have more access. But he's in this meditative state. And there's a woman named Jane who's in another room. They don't 
Bob doesn't know what Jane is looking at in the room, but the experimenters are showing her an image of something. And she's asked to try to mentally send it to Bob in the other room, even though she doesn't claim to have psychic ability. So she's like sitting there mentally saying, well, I'm looking at this image, I'm sending it to Bob. They're separate for a while. Then Bob is shown four pictures, one of which is the one Jane was trying to send. He doesn't know which one it was. And if there were no effect at all, you would expect that over decades of research, thousands of trials, the person in Bob's room would guess correctly one out of four times because it should just be a random event. It should just be 25%. But the person in Bob's room guesses correctly closer to 32% of the time, which using statistics is massively significant. It's known as a six sigma result, meaning that the odds that this is happening due to chance alone is more than a billion to one. And in scientific terms, okay, that's a real effect. Something's going on. Some information is getting through It's like some of the water from Jane's whirlpool is getting into Bob's, like a little bit of it. And there might be ways to harness those abilities into practice. And I I talked to Russell Targ, who ran or was one of the leaders of the U.S. government's psychic spying program, which began in the 1970s. And he's run courses and and taught many of the remote viewers how to do this. So I think maybe we have innate, innate abilities that can be on a scale just like any other skill. But even if someone is at a quote unquote low level, there are ways to enhance those abilities. Wow, what are some of those ways? I think ultimately it's about quieting the mind. That's what the remote viewing teacher, so remote viewing is the ability to perceive something that's far away, both in space and time. And the teachers who I've talked to, they'll say, well, just go into a quiet state, and they're trying to picture what they'll call a target. They don't know what the target is. It might be like a picture of a lion, it might be a building. but they're told to just sit there quietly and describe or draw whatever images pop into their mind without judgment and just see what happens. And wow. I think the, the more the research shows, the more that people think or are trying to actively make it happen, mm-hmm. the less the performance is. Yes. Like trying to use your mind to figure it out. You're like, I'm going to muscle my way rather than like actually receiving any information. Yes. Wow. Exactly. It's a, it's a receptive, passive state. That's how it's described. Wow. And so beautiful that you were just giving the, um, the image of like water from a whirlpool, like the yin and yang. Yin is, is yeah. water element. It is receptive in nature. And so that's really powerful. Wow. Cool. Have you, so I know you've been spending a lot of time meditating. Do you have a specific um, meditation practice that you have harnessed or is it just kind of up for grabs? And have you been able to kind of turn the volume up on, on your abilities? The intent behind my meditation, at least so far, has not really been about psychic abilities, even mm-hmm. though maybe I feel like I'm more intuitive in general than I was before. Sure. It's more about trying to connect to this, whatever it is, intelligence that's beyond us, the broader stream of consciousness. And for me, it's become so energetic the story behind this is that I couldn't meditate for 15 minutes. Even my journey started in 2016 Mm -hmm. on this path. I went on meditation retreats, two silent retreats before the pandemic hit in 2020. One was six days, one was five days, no talking, just like Vipassana. It wasn't quite Vipassana. They were two teachers. One was Adyashanti and others, her name is Mukti. So it was sort of like non-denominational spiritual teachers, but silent for those those periods. And for someone who couldn't sit still, like that was a big challenge in the beginning. But I had a breakthrough, I think, in terms of just being able to do it because energy started to flow in. I started to feel pulsations in my forehead, which I now know is the third eye. Um, Different 
like I don't even know how to explain it because it's it's energetic like flowing through my body different parts of my body like a lot of times even right now because I meditated a bunch this morning there's this like pressure in my head mm-hmm. and I feel the energy moving through different parts of my face and like this was not happening to me before but now it's very real when I meditate now going back to your question I'm just kind of sitting in that space, almost letting the energy discharge and whatever comes in, I let come in. Sometimes my mind becomes overactive. That's okay sometimes because I do a lot of research and I'm like almost congealing what I learn and consolidating it. Mm -hmm. Other times it's too much and I'll just sit and focus on my breathing and then you go back into a state of of stillness. And that's Adyashanti's method. I I really like his teachings. It's it's almost like a non-method method of just being and trying to be still both in the body and the mind as much as possible. And for me, when that happens now, the energy is incredibly strong. So I have a, a way now of calibrating my meditation because I feel the energy to different degrees. Wow. That's so, so powerful. Everybody get involved <laughs> with the meditation and Adya Shanti is amazing. And I don't know Mukti, but sounds, sounds phenomenal. His wife. Um, Oh, very cool. They're very similar in their philosophy. Mm, That's so powerful. Okay, cool. So we have meditation. Do you or have you accessed any other tools that you find that help us get to this state of just remembering? I feel like it's a remembering more than anything. Getting back in touch. I like the the way the yogic tradition categorizes the, the areas because I think it applies to any tradition of basically spiritual development. One is yana yoga, which is the pathway of knowledge and wisdom. And for me, that's kind of been my primary path of connection through trying to understand the nature of reality. What is all this? Why am I here? Is there meaning like you asked? And trying to really hone in on that and understand the world in which we live in the context of this broader consciousness. So that's one, knowledge and wisdom. Another is karma yoga, which broadly is selfless service, thinking about how we're gonna be of service. There's the devotional path, which is the bhakti yoga. And that's could be like an attitude of understanding divine love and that we're part of this whole thing. Uh, some would do it through prayer or chanting, but that's just a, a kind of a devotional quality. And the, the fourth category is energy, which could be meditation, yoga, anything that focuses on the body, really, um, and, and our energetic connection. So it's a broad category. Knowledge, wisdom, selfless service, devotion, and energy. Those are the pathways really that encompass anything you could try. And they're like different pathways up the mountain and ultimately they're interconnected. So you end up doing all of them once you get really far in one. Like for me, it was, it was all knowledge in the beginning, all just learning and then started to have some weird synchronicities. Like, well, that's kind of weird. And then yeah. just meditating a little bit and things start to spiral. And then it's like, well, I should share this with, with people because it's very impactful. And that's a form of service. Karma. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. So I have a few questions. I'm like, which one should I go first? Um, you know, all of this talk around, around consciousness and around potentially reincarnation and, you know, all of these things makes me feel, makes me want to bring up like organized religion and how, and I don't know if you have any thoughts or insights on this, but just, you know, I was not raised under any sort of denomination in particular, and I very much am in alignment with everything that you're saying. So I say this from a place of just kind of curiosity around organized religion and, and some of the belief systems that are very 
heavy in our culture around why we are here. And I feel like what everything you're talking about seems to be so expansive versus certain organized religions seems to be very kind of uh, restrictive. And I just would love to know your insights on that. I think I'm inherently rebellious towards the idea of organized religion. I grew up in a Jewish household. We weren't very religious, but I always questioned it because I'm like, why, why, why am I just going to follow these rules? I, yeah. It didn't make sense to me. Now I, I, I've looked a little bit at, at various religions and there is a central theme. If you get behind the rituals and some of the more dogmatic ideas that, that aligns with the idea that we're part of a unified consciousness and that we're here for some evolutionary purpose. They might put it in different ways, but that's a core principle, a core spiritual principle of probably every, I don't know, most, if not all religions. Mm. Then the question becomes what kinds of beliefs are tacked onto that as the only way, or do I have to practice X, Y, and Z in order to find the true meaning? That's where I start to struggle with, with, pathways or religions that say there's only one way and it's just just this i start to become hesitant mm. so I, I have i would say mixed feelings about the nature of religion depending on the religion depending on the person that's speaking about it because i do think there's a lot of truth in some of the core teachings and it's possible looking at religious stories that there there might be truth to what they're describing in terms of history about yeah. the history of humankind that maybe there were supernatural things happening and i say supernatural in quotes because maybe we just don't have the science yet to understand it and that's can be an interesting way of looking at it so i would say overall there's a lot to be learned from religion but i become cautious when it starts to seem dogmatic and there yes. isn't an openness that gives me caution totally and i i concur. I think it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, it's now it's kind of been manipulated. Like I look at, and to anyone listening who is Christian or Catholic, you know, bless your heart, bless you. Um, but, you know, I look at the teachings of Christ, like Christ consciousness is really like, I think the teaching of Christ, but then we add on top of it, kind of the, um, it, I don't know, it feels like compression to me. Um, and maybe that's the dogma. You know, and I just think that's fascinating. Well, anytime things are institutionalized, there's a risk of manipulation. Yeah. And we see that like in all parts of society. So I, I don't think I don't think any religion or any group is immune from that. And it's important because we're thinking about the nature of reality and we always have to be mindful of how it could be polluted by different motives. To me, my I found what I found to be most useful is looking at direct experiences of people. Because even most of the religions, like Judaism, it's Moses and Christianity, it's Jesus, Muhammad and Islam. They are they're looking at the experience of of someone who probably did have a mystical experience yes. or had some transcendent experience. And we have lots of those to report on today. And we have technology to be able to document it and to spread the information, whether it's near-death experiences or meditation experiences or psychedelics or just regular spiritually transformative experiences that happen in everyday life. There are commonalities across those, which happen to align with a lot of the religious traditions. And that's just been my way of approaching it. If like, well, how, we put it all together, what are the common threads? In like the Venn diagram, what's the middle? 
So good. So you're talking about mystical experiences. Would you be able to share? I know that you have a podcast, which I'd love to put in the show notes as well. So of course, everyone, please head on to to Mark's show. Um, But I would love for you to share either a mystical experience of yours or maybe of one of your your guests on your podcast, just to give people an idea of what the heck that means. Sure. Well, my podcast is called Where's My Mind? And I interviewed a number of people who've had near-death experiences, and they talk about this feeling of being immersed in unconditional love and, and things like that. So I haven't had that experience, like what they describe. I haven't had an experience where I felt like I've been in another dimension or anything like that. But two times in meditation within the last, I don't know, almost two years, one of these was actually before I got really into meditation. I had a similar experience where this energy came in that was trying to use words. And this is one of the common challenges that people talk about. They can't really describe it, language. It's like trying to explain the taste of chocolate to someone that's never had a dessert before. How do you yes. even do it? Yeah, so I'm going to give analogies. The, the energy that came in was very light, almost like my body was dense and the lightness was coming in. It was not like a being. I didn't feel like there was a third party, but my body was becoming light and it was entering my body and it was extremely pleasurable. That's the best way to describe it. Like I said earlier, it was beyond any pleasure that I could describe. And I remember thinking, now I understand why someone would go meditate in a cave for 10 years because if you're trying, if we're all trying to experience good things, this is better than anything I've had. So totally. that that's the way I would explain it. It it was sort of like a love sensation. There was a parallel to that, but it was not like a personal love. Mm. It was mm-hmm. something way bigger than that. So that that experience happened. The first time it happened. It was so overwhelming to my body that my, I had to actually shut it down, or I don't know if I did intentionally or whatever it was. It was terrifying. Yeah. Because there was a sense of dying. And in many spiritual traditions, they talk about ego death. It's just going to say it. Yes. It was probably something like that. And it was too much for me to handle at the time. Fast forward, maybe six months later, it was at the end of my first meditation retreat with was Mukti, was the first one. I came back home, I was meditating. And I had a similar experience where the energy came in. It was a love-esque experience, feeling completely overwhelming. But the second time I had a a strange phenomenon while my eyes were closed that I was spinning Mm. like in circles somehow, but I wasn't, I opened my eyes and I wasn't moving. And there was a sense that I was going to disappear. That's what in a split second I was experiencing, like, I'm going to disappear. Wait, Mark, you can't let this happen because there would be people that would be very upset if you just disappeared. Like, you know, that's what, mm-hmm. whatever my mind was thinking at the time. And it yes. shut it down again. Oh. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good or bad. When I th- think in hindsight, I happened to write my second book in the following few days. So maybe I needed to shut it down. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever it was, it was extremely mystical. And I, no one can tell me it didn't happen because it did happen. <laughs> and I'm still having remnants of that energy all the time now. Yes. So I think like for me, having done all this research and looked at experiences of other people, then to have the experiences happen to me personally, even if it was just a tiny glimpse, that brings reality to it. And I say that because we live our lives and there's so many distractions that we get caught up in, but we're living in this reality that seems to be much bigger than what our eyes show us yes. and to not pay attention to that. And is it could be a mistake or it could be misleading. 
and this gets to how I think about life now and, and really the question of my second book, which is what is the overall intention of your life? That's how I start mm. the book. How, wh- how do we direct the compass of our life? Is it based on just what we see in the world or are we part of some bigger consciousness? Is reincarnation real? Is there a broader meaning? Because if there is, then the way we prioritize everything in our life will, will change. And that's what happened for me. I was working in the business world and I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize spending so much mental energy on those areas because I wasn't as interested and I had this bigger perspective. So I got to the point where it was very challenging because I'd spent 10 years at the firm, very close with everyone, to tell my business partners that I needed to do something else. That was a hard thing to do, but my compass really shifted. That's what happened. Wow. When people feel that call, like when people feel like, okay, I'm on the precipice. I want to make a shift. I feel like my, my compass needs to shift. Where... I mean, obviously, of course, like what you're talking about with meditation, getting quiet and these, these yoga paths, would you recommend, I mean, I don't know, would you recommend any books or would you recommend, of course, yours, but um, things that helped you along your path. And of course, we'll put your books in the show notes. I want everyone to get their hands on that too. Um, But other teachers and other teachings that you would recommend for people who are curious. Definitely. Well, part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is to try to create a primer because my books and my podcast, they put a lot of sources together and it's sort of like, okay, well, if you're more interested in this, you can read these books or look up this person. I would say in terms of the scientific, I'll talk about the scientific realm and the spiritual realm, even though they're connected. But for me, the science has been impactful because that's my my background. So looking at the work of Dr. Bruce Grayson, for example, he's a researcher at the University of Virginia. He has a new book out called After, which talks about his his decades looking at the near-death experience. I actually haven't read it yet, but I interviewed him. He's really smart. So Dr. Bruce Grayson and other people in his space, like Dr. Raymond Moody, it's very powerful to learn about what people have observed in these cases because they go back throughout history too. It's just that now our resuscitation technology is so much better that we have more and more cases of bringing people back. These are people that are directly experiencing what they would call this unified benevolent force. It's very powerful to learn about that. So that the near-death experience is a big one, but also the psychic abilities and looking at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radin, he, R-A-D-I-N, he's done a lot of research on the statistics of all this stuff. So oh. those are a few resources in that area. In the spiritual realm, it becomes tricky because the more I looked at this, I realized that there's a spectrum of quote unquote teachers. And even within teachers, you could have someone that was really at a high level, but then maybe became corrupted or became less pure. It's known as the fallen guru syndrome. And the the three areas where people go astray, and this is um, Mariana Kaplan has studied many of these gurus. Um, She talks about money, sex, and power. Those are the three ways that a guru or any individual can be seduced by something that takes them off their path. Yes. And I say that because if we're, if we're interested in these topics, we can get distracted with stuff that's not going to be most beneficial. So it's like, how do we find the highest teachers that are not as not polluted in any way so we can be most efficient? Probably many of the religious teachings have hints of this in it, in them. For yeah. me, uh, so there've been a few. Dr. David Hawkins He's famous for his scale of consciousness. He wrote Power Versus Force, which is a very famous book. I've actually been less drawn to the scale of consciousness part, but more to his teachings because they were, I think, very pure 
and he was somewhat contemporary. He died, I think, in 2012 or 2013. Mm -hmm. And he was a psychiatrist before he had his big awakening. So he does a lot on deconstructing the ego, which is really important because we are this ego, even though there's the much broader stuff. And he has a book called Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender, which is the last one he wrote before he passed away. And I've had a number of friends who have read that who are pretty mainstream people. And this book bridges the gap pretty well letting go the pathway of surrender it's like it's like one of those books that it's worth reading more than once Mm. and if if one really absorbs what he's saying and puts it into practice like the notion of of surrender while not being passive there's so much to it but it's like a life changer in terms of how to think about life Mm. God, that's so good. Those are such good resources. I'm really excited about this and I'm really excited to get my hands on your book books as well. Um, I just looked at the clock. I'm like, it's already been 40 minutes. I feel like I want to just say, A, thank you so much for this wealth of wisdom that you just dropped on us. This is so beautiful. Um, and then B, just ask, where can we connect to you? Like, where are you the most active? Social media, website, where can we find you? My website is my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And it has summary information on my books and podcasts and everything else, whatever ends up coming up next, which I don't know what that will be. Also, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mark Gober author. I post things occasionally, but if if I have any announcements, I have a mailing list on my website as well. Great. Mark. Thank you for this. You are so awesome. I cannot wait to share this and just spread the good word. It's good stuff. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for all that you're doing. I think podcasts like this are extremely important. For me, it was the podcast that shifted my compass. It was like the initial step. So I always think about that because I've done so many of these conversations in the last few years. You never know who's going to hear it and you never know when. It could be 10 years from now that someone hears this conversation and it sparks something. And um, yes, it reminded me of something that, that. Um, Daniel Brinkley said. He's the man who had four near-death experiences. Mm. I was listening a few months ago to a lecture he gave. It was on YouTube. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. And he was saying something like, you know, I'm giving this talk right now very selfishly because I know it's going to change some of your lives and I'm going to get to experience that in my life review because I'm going to get to see the positive <laughs> impact this has. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And, you know, I... ESP a little bit going on because today I was I was um, I was having kind of an ego moment because I I was posting something that I found to be very meaningful on social media and the post just was kind of getting swallowed by the algorithm and I had this moment of like fuck like I just really want people to like know what I'm talking about because I think it's important and then I had this thought I was like you know what? maybe after I die people will see it <laughs> like whenever that is and so it's it's just that moment of like when when it gets known it's not up to me and in my life review i i hope that this will have touched people yeah well alexa <laughs> i i think about that all the time because i'm like wow this stuff is so life-changing if people understood it it could make their lives so great Completely. but it's not up to me for someone to have those realizations like the best mm-hmm. we can do is just put it out there and make it accessible but people will do it on their own time totally and i don't know well, when that is for each person it's like power versus force you know like I can't force it. Like just let it be in its power and it will attract what it needs to attract when it's ready to attract it. So that's it. That's it. Render whatever (laughs) attachments we have to outcomes and just say, I'm going to do my best. And I have no, I can't control the outcome. So I'm going to let it be. 
Letting go of the power of surrender. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Mark, you rock. I, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, you guys, thank you so much for carving out the time to listen to this wisdom, to listen to uh, all this goodness. Um, Once again, gentle reminder to please check out savagelosangeles.com to learn more about my new company that I'm so proud of. I hope it inspires you to create and cultivate a life that you dig. Um, And also, if you are down and have, you know, oh, I don't know, 10 seconds, then please, please give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes. Super easy. Just give it five stars, maybe say a few kind words. And if you dug it, please share it with your friends. I would be over the moon with gratitude. Um, All right. You guys are the bee's knees. Much love. Stay savage. Stay savage.